Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In her new book, The American Adrenaline Narrative, Kristen Jacobson considers the nature of perilous outdoor adventure tales, their gendered biases, and how they simultaneously promote and hinder ecological sustainability. To explore these themes, Jacobson defines and compares adrenaline narratives by a range of American authors published after the first Earth Day in 1970, a time frame selected as a watershed moment for the contemporary American environmental movement. The 40-plus years since that day also marked the rise in the popularity and marketing of many things as extreme, including sports, jobs, travel, beverages, gum, makeovers, laundry detergent, and even the environmental movement itself. Jacobson maps the American eco-imagination via adrenaline narratives, surveying a range of popular and lesser-known primary texts by American authors, including bestsellers such as John Krakauer's Into Thin Air and Aaron Ralston's Between a Rock and a Hard Place. She also covers lesser-known novels, as well as stories found in all types of media, ranging from magazines, feature-length and short films, television shows, amateur videos, social media posts, advertising, and blogs. Jacobson argues for recognizing adrenaline narratives as a distinctive genre because, unlike traditional nature, travel, and sports writing, adrenaline narratives sustained heightened risk or the element of the extreme within a natural setting. Additionally, these narratives provide important insight into the American environmental imagination's connection to masculinity and adventure. Knowledge that helps us grasp the current climate crisis and see how narrative understanding provides a needed intervention. Kristen Jacobson is a professor of American Literature, American Studies, and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey. She completed her PhD at Penn State, her MA at the University of Colorado Boulder, and her BA at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. She joins me today to talk about her new book. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Kristen Jacobson to talk about her new book, The American Adrenaline Narrative. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Sure. Um, Well, I guess I've always loved to read and I've been blessed throughout my life with amazing teachers and a family who fed this love of books. So I really thought when I started college that um, I'd become a high school teacher. But once I started taking my first college classes, I changed my mind. I thought, oh, I'd really like to be in higher education. Um, I did have backup plans um, just in case it didn't work out, which was good. This hasn't been necessarily a smooth path as it is for, you know, I think a lot of academics, we tend to focus on our successes and, you know, kind of hide our uh, the struggles that we've had. And so, you know, it, it was difficult for me to get uh, into an MA program and to find a PhD program. But uh, once I started that, I really... Um, enjoyed the opportunities to read widely in literature. And I found out that I really had the most to say about American literature and really enjoyed the untested territory of contemporary American literature. So I prefer long form narratives and the novel really emerged as a genre, which provides both my pleasure and my work reading. And I have to say, too, in terms of how I entered the field has been really influenced by my dissertation advisor, Deb Clark. She played a key role in introducing me to the field and how to be an academic and mentor. And she's really been such an excellent role model. So I want to give her a little shout out. (laughs) Oh, that's really cool. It's a really relevant um, point because um, it's so difficult to break into academia now. I mean, it always has been, but I think it's harder now. Um, so so she gave you direction in terms of the field or the topic or how you marketed yourself? 
I think once, uh, yeah, the the field, you know, one thing that uh, she did as a mentor still does to this day is, uh, you know, taking graduate students uh, when I was graduate students to conferences and introducing us to people in the field. Uh, she's always been very generous about um, now, you know, helping you network in that way. And so and I also think that in terms of how she provided feedback that was pushing me to produce better work, while at the same time, was doing so in a way that wasn't, you know, going to discourage me and think, oh, I'm not going to be successful in doing this. So um, oh, that's really those are, great. I, those are two examples. Uh, yeah. that I could think of. Wonderful. Okay. Well, then tell us next how you came to write this particular book. I was, so I was a PhD, PhD student at Penn State, and I took a writing and a nature writing and eco-criticism course with professor there, Bob Burkholder. And at the end of the semester, I had an idea to write about books that I had been reading for pleasure. So books like John Krakauer's Into Thin Air and Into the Wild. They weren't part of the curriculum for that class, but he generously said, go for it. You know, take some of the theory that we've been uh, discussing and apply it to these books. And then um, Kit Hume, another professor at Penn State, uh, at that time offered a graduate summer course that was focused on the profession and revising an essay for publication. And so I workshopped the essay I wrote for that course in her class. And she actually gave me the idea to name the genre. She planted that seed. So uh, this work resulted ultimately in my first academic publication with the journal Genre. Uh, but my dissertation topic, which is also uh, related to a genre and narrative, but it was related to fiction, you know, I, I wasn't going to change my topic uh, and explore this field yet. So the adrenaline narrative kind of simmered <laughs> while I completed my dissertation, started my job and then finished my first book, uh, which was based on my dissertation about neo-domestic American fiction. So I, I guess sort of more informally, too, when I was a graduate student in Colorado, that's really when I started reading these kinds of books for pleasure. And I just was fascinated with the culture in Colorado, uh, with the extreme athletes that I would see training every day. I'd be walking to class and um, see these amazing athletes. So that kind of spurred my initial interest. Okay, that, that, that does make sense. And in fact, that actually leads me to the first question I wanted to ask you about your book, because um, it struck me that you did define the term adrenaline narrative, right? You kind of define this genre, and that's a big part of what the book is about. Um, so I wanted to ask you if I had that right. And then to tell us what this means, and why it does have particular resonance today in America, especially. Yeah, so the term is mine, inspired by uh, Kit Hume uh, to to do it, and then I figured out the term. Uh, fundamentally, the adrenaline narrative is a story about perilous outdoor adventure, and I am specifically looking at the contemporary American adrenaline narrative. So I think there's, in, in many ways, the adrenaline narrative is a global narrative. Uh, but I'm particularly interested in its contemporary American aspects and incarnations. So I focused on narratives by and or about Americans writing and or doing these extreme adventures. So I think the other part of your question was, you know, what's the appeal and resonance uh, today? And Particularly in an American context, these narratives tap into foundational American myths that define our relationship to wilderness and that shape the adventurer's identity. So, for example, contemporary adventure has a deep concern with authenticity, and often that authenticity is connected with things like solitude and deprivation and danger. And that connects it to an arguably uniquely American um, Thorovian tra tradition, right? Uh, and I should say, too, that solitude, deprivation, and danger are how the author of a book called North uh, to the Night describes authentic adventure. Um, I also think that when considering the um, why the genre is uh, resonates today, that it's important to keep in mind that the that in the in these fifty years since the first Earth Day in nineteen seventy that there's been this rise in the popularity and marketing 
uh, basically everything extreme. By the early 1970s, you have the emergence of extreme sports. And by the late 1990s, uh, certainly extreme adventure would be part of the, the zeitgeist. Uh, Bill McKibben, uh, who wrote the book Long Distance, uses this term. That's how he describes uh, extreme adventure, extreme sports um, at, at, you know, in the late 1990s. So today we have extreme sports, we have extreme makeovers, we have extreme products. You know, you can get everything from extreme gum, laundry detergent, beverages. And I think these products tap into a, a fascination with extreme adventure. And that's in part what drives the popularity of, you know, television shows, for example, or film. Uh, so, I'm, you know, if I'm sure everyone is maybe thinking of some of those uh, popular television shows from Survivor, Survivor Man, Out of the Wild, Doomsday Preppers, Dual Survival, Naked and Afraid, Man, Woman, Wild. Um, stop listing there. <laughs> uh, the, so the contemporary American adrenaline narrative can be found in a range of media outlets, advertising, social media, film, television, and certainly short and long-form nonfiction. And I primarily focused on long-form or book-length nonfiction in, in my book. So uh, I think that the American adrenaline narrative is so pervasive in contemporary American culture that it really deserves um, more attention in academic culture than um, what, it's, what I think it's been given so far. Yeah, I love the fact that you open with all of these examples from marketing and advertising, because the notion of something like extreme laundry detergent is just ridiculous on its face. But I think it really goes to show what you're talking about, or the argument that you're making here that that the adrenaline narrative has cultural implications beyond just uh, daydreaming about mountain climbing, for example. And and so you talk specifically about how it influences the public's thinking about um, environment and environmentalism. So I was going to ask you, how do you go about charting these effects of the cultural implications? Mm -hmm. In some ways, my studies is a very kind of traditional look at narrative. It understands literature as acting as both, you know, I'm going to use a uh, uh, someone who's written about romantic literature, M.H. Abrams' uh, book about the mirror and the lamp. I don't know if you've heard of that before. But basically, this is the kind of understanding that narrative reflects and shapes culture. So in some ways, you know, my charting of these effects are looking at narrative in that way. And I specifically focus on the ways in which the American adrenaline narrative represents nature. And nature's portrayals and functions in the adrenaline narrative fall into five categories, conquering, spiritual, erotic, risky, and restorative. And these five attitudes, uh, rhetorics, I argue are more than just personified or uh, metaphoric representations of nature. Rather, they form these coherent semiotic systems that play crucial roles in shaping and understanding the American environmental imagination. And so therefore are sustainable and sometimes unsustainable behaviors. Uh, one of the ways in which I chart the effects is to look at adventures identity politics. So who are the primary authors and who participates in extreme adventures? And so then what do those perspectives, both those that fall inside or outside of this majority, and the majority uh, tends to be white, heterosexual, able-bodied men. Um, class is a little bit trickier to classify, but um, I'm looking at then what those who fit the norm and those who don't fit that um, traditional uh, adventurer, uh, what they add to the narrative, what insight they give to the narrative. Uh, I'm also interested in the impact, uh, as you mentioned, uh, of the narrative, especially for its environmental message uh, on the reader. Many readers and adventurers, I think, are already environmentalists when they pick up these texts. Um, so I gauge how well the narrative aligns with environmental principles. And basically what I find is that it's a mixed bag. I use Jane Jacobs' term schizophrenic to describe the adrenaline narrative's contradictory environmental messages. Um, I'm also curious about how the adrenaline 
narrative might shape or encourage environmental principles, especially among those probably armchair adventurers who otherwise might not spend a lot of time in the wilderness. So now my, you know, again, my text, I'm doing a text-based or narrative-based study, so I don't do reader response criticism that would measure this impact directly. But I am making some inferences based on what others have studied in regard to reading, especially long-form narrative, uh, increasing empathy. And I'm also um, discuss others how how they found support for conservation and sustainability measures, how, how support for that increases after a nature experience or uh, being out in nature. So the, this body of research really focuses on why representation matters in outdoor marketing and why there's a push to increase diversity in the outdoors. Uh, and so I apply these ideas to the study of primarily long uh, book length uh, nonfiction narratives to discuss and measure how representation matters in the adrenaline narrative. So you divide your book into five chapters. You've kind of already alluded to those mm-hmm. five categories. Um, the primary desires or attitudes towards nature that this uh, genre or, of narrative or of sentiment really exhibit. And you start with the notion of conquering nature, where nature is depicted as an object of domination and control. So this is the attitude I- I'm guessing that perhaps most of us are familiar with, because it goes back at least as far as Francis Bacon, who spoke of the earth in terms of a woman who could be like exposed and even raped by men of science. Um, and so I'm wondering, how do you see this idea of conquest emerging in contemporary American stories about the outdoors? Yeah, I, to answer your this question, I think I'm going to draw from an example that I talk about at the beginning of this chapter. And it's an example from Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, because I think it really characterizes this uh, the contemporary portrayal of conquering nature. Uh, in this passage, Krakauer describes reaching the summit of Everest. And he is, quote, straddling the top of the world, one foot in China and the other in Nepal. So this description presents, in many ways, the iconic image of the heroic adventurer. The description arguably feminizes nature, right, in the straddling aspect, and also emphasizes then that conquest of nature. Uh, Just a few sentences later, though, uh, Krakauer reveals that he, quote, just couldn't summon the energy to care. And so it's this inability to muster... uh, sublime, transformative moment of triumph for both himself and his readers that begins to suggest the ways in which conquering remains both fundamentally central to and increasingly problematic for the contemporary adrenaline narrative. Uh, With that said, heroic masculinity uh, and its relationship to conquering tends to dominate the narrative. Uh, another uh, uh, scholar, uh, Kyle Kutz, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, his last name is spelled K-U-S-Z, <laughs> suggests, uh, he suggests that this rise in extreme sports um, and its popularity is in part a result of white anxiety, and more specifically white male anxiety, about changing gendered and racial roles. These are changes brought about particularly by the social justice movements of the late 1960s and early 70s, so that extreme sports provide end up providing an outlet to express conventional heroic masculinity, which includes this sort of conquering element. Uh, uh, Kutz also points out that this masculinity is firmly associated with, and I'm going to quote from him here, a fraternity of American masculine icons and the American mythology of the frontier, end quote. So extreme sports offer opportunities to reassert conquering desires associated with American identity. Uh, uh, heroic American men can still conquer and rugged masculinity in many ways through these sports can be unapologetically expressed in the context of these extreme adventures. So heroic masculinity, uh, and sometimes I think that this might get masked or or also presented as a, as a kind of grit, 
uh, aligns with the Protestant work ethic and the sense that those that work hard will be rewarded. Uh, in this sense, heroic masculinity and its conquering desires are especially difficult to critique or alter in an American context um, because they provide this model uh, that um, by or they provide the model by which both adventurous and American success are determined. I'm curious then, um, do you ever see um, female adventurers or writers performing those masculinities? Yeah, yeah. Really? That, yeah. Um, the and, and it comes through in in the literature in the, the in the expression that there's still this idea that they're conquering nature. Uh, a lot of first ascent uh, uh, in mountaineering or a first climb uh, tends to just seem to reproduce this kind of language. So in many ways, the idea of conquering or overcoming. Um, and here's to where it often gets blurred between conquering desires and spiritual natures. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, they, they get mixed up, uh, in this sense. Fascinating. Okay. Um, so let's move on to spiritual natures next. Uh, you examine depictions of nature that evoke or invoke a spiritual dimension. And you write that, I'll quote you here, extreme nature often elicits some form of piety, even among agnostic travelers. So what's going on here? Well, I think in part what's going on here is it's really difficult to break narrative patterns. Uh, so like the narrative patterns in, um, for heroic masculinity, right. Uh, and that bootstrap narrative, which rings very true and loud <laughs> for many Americans, uh, that we can see then that a, something similar happens when we're dealing with trying to describe an individual, um, uh, transformation of one's identity. So while the agnostic right is not connected to God or necessarily uh, an under you know something we would call a higher spiritual power, they are connected to and often transformed by nature. And so, like, um, or another way in which this narrative then it's hard to extract it from the spiritual language is that like pilgrimages, uh, adventure is often constructed as a journey that goes away from home. The adventurer, like the pilgrim, accomplishes a series of physical and mental challenges. And then hopefully, if all goes well, right, the adventurer returns home. So where traditional conquering desire is about triumph over, spiritual desire may also have this um, humbling effect. The adventurer realizes their insignificance so it's difficult to describe this epiphany, right, without turning to spiritual, if not religious, language. Okay, interesting. Um, you you say as well, which strikes me as, as rather amazing, again, that this spiritual response to nature is also subject to retrograde gender stereotypes. Um, it's amazing to me, I guess, just that, that it becomes so difficult to get away from these, even in something as neutral as nature. So tell us um, what's going on here. I think that key here is that spiritual desire is still anthropocentric. It's still human-centered. And it's about the individual transformation of the adventurer, not the land itself. So as a result, it's hard to remove nature from its patriarchal and colonial feminized or other position. Uh, here, uh, I think it's helpful to think how ecofeminists generally agree that to intervene in the environmental crisis requires intersectional analysis. That is, you cannot address the climate crisis without also considering sexism, racism, economic inequality, uh, so that as long as nature serves as an object of desire, as it does in both conquering and spiritual desire, I think it will be difficult to challenge gendered and racial stereotypes. Okay, so that takes us to erotic natures then, and that takes a bit of a turn uh, away from this pattern. Um, so this idea draws from the eco-feminist notion of the erotic, which is very different, as you point out, from the patriarchal pornographic 
type of erotic that we might think of. Um, and you write that this approach aims for a nuanced understanding of humanity's place within the natural world and seeks a reciprocal, mutually beneficial relationship with the wilderness. So this is very different from what we've seen so far. How should we understand this? So the erotic understands nature as another player or actor rather than a passive object. Uh, nature in its erotic construction is not a backdrop, uh, but a mutual force with which the adventurer, and they often use this language, dances or plays with. The erotic will challenge um, firm self-other, human nature, boundaries, dichotomies in favor of this mutually beneficial or mutualism. Um, for some, the boundaries become so tangled that the erotic reveals the false or culturally constructed difference between self and other and human and nature. It collapses those boundaries. Uh, and then for others, the distance is required. And this is in part, this is drawing particularly out of post-colonial theory that the self, um, this is required so the self does not colonize or subsume the other. Um, ultimately, rather than picking a side between these kinds of uh, theoretical debates, I talk about how what I've seen in the American adrenaline narrative really portrays both as part of its portrayal of erotic desire. You have adventurers who will maintain some of that distance between self and other, um, or human and nature, and then you'll have some that will really try and collapse those boundaries. So one passage that I talk about in this chapter is from a book by Patricia McCarran. Uh, her book, Canyon Solitude, is about a solo river journey through the Grand Canyon. And McCarran, um, when she writes about the river, she uh, describes it like this. Um, let's see, quote, uh, the river dances with excitement, enjoying her display of potency, uh, enticing me to join in her play, end quote. So on one level, like we might say, oh, this is just McCarran personifying nature. Uh, but I think it's important here that while personified, that does not mean that nature is human-centered. Uh, and I think here it's helpful to look at uh, an example from another book, uh, Christine Bly, her, in her book, Dirt Work. She uh, writes, quote, Part of what fascinated me about wild animals is the element of threat, not because they are bloodthirsty or even necessarily predators, but because their actions are not about me, end quote. So we see that rather than viewing other, in this sense, nature, uh, through a controlling or an objectifying gaze, Bly and McCarran are focused on recognizing the other's nature's agency and goals, which could be very different uh, from their own. Well, that kind of leads to my next question then, because I was wondering if you could put this question of danger in perspective for us, because there's much about nature that's always going to be inherently dangerous to humans. And I was wondering how the ecofeminist perspective accommodates or frames that danger then. I think intersectionality is key here too. how women are viewed for taking risks, especially if they're mothers, is still very distinct uh, from how men are viewed. What kind of risks women incur when adventuring alone or in an expedition, uh, I think is also key. For some female athletes, uh, what I found in their narratives, what they felt that uh, wilderness was a safe haven from sexism and the fear of sexual assault. And for other, wilderness intensified those fears and confrontations. So in terms of the narratives themselves, uh, ecofeminist adventurers also, I think, they, they think about this danger and, and try and do so in a way that's writing against heroic masculinities, conquering goals and plot. Um, Sherry Simpson, uh, her book, The Accidental Explorer, Wayfinding in Alaska, is a great example of this. Uh, her book 
explicitly challenges wilderness as a blank, undiscovered space. And she uses a nonlinear structure to resist telling a conventional adventure tale. So think about like that journey structure I was talking about earlier. So she talks about how that she doesn't write a narrative that, quote, marches across this page from camp to camp, from night to night, recounting a string of events. Instead, she uses this concept of wayfinding, uh, where she provides, um, let's see, she describes it as maps of discovery, not maps of discovery, but maps of knowingness. So the this example from the Accidental Explorer, I think, shows how some of the narratives are self-consciously revising the colonial structure and that linear goal-oriented journey plot. Um, another author, Suzanne Roberts, in her book, Almost Somewhere, also consciously seeks to write a different adventure narrative, one not, quote, defined for me by the men I dated or hope to date, end quote. Uh, and I think the fact that Sophia Dannenberg, who was the first African-American and first African-American woman, to uh, climb Everest has, she's resisted the limelight. And there isn't a book, uh, she hasn't written a book about her first descent. And in some ways, I think that absence, that uh, purposeful silence uh, speaks to the limited narrative frame available to tell her story. So in this case, her refusal can be seen as a kind of form of resistance to some of the adrenaline narratives, rigid, uh, racial and gendered frames. And maybe one more uh, kind of example in thinking about, because uh, in, in resisting or rewriting these frames, right, this is how these authors are thinking about danger and risk. And probably one of the most controversial is uh, Timothy Treadwell, who uh, people might be familiar with from uh, the film Grizzly Man. Um, it's, he's another figure that I discuss in this chapter in terms of how well he does or does not revise or challenge conventional heroic masculinity and how it deals with risk. Uh, ultimately, I see Treadwell as representative of the American adrenaline narrative schizophrenic desire. He fuses um, a more damaging patriarchal, heroic masculinity, and, and al more of an alternative queer or critical anthropomorphism. So death and the risk uh, of death is part of the adrenaline narrative. And I wouldn't say that ecofeminism or an ecofeminist approach seeks to make wilderness, you know, like a resort or kind of, you know, disnify it. Uh, ecofeminism is, uh, though, engaged in the work of redefining wilderness, not as, you know, not as an exclusive destination, not as this separate out there location, but rather to see wilderness um that it can be in our own backyards, it can be visible from our apartment window, and that this concept of, of, of nature culture uh, is a part of ecofeminist aim to uh, radically rethink wilderness and heroic uh, masculinity and the way in which risk informs both of them. So a theme that threads through all of these types of adrenaline narratives is that of risk. And certainly it seems that the risk of personal danger is what distinguishes the extreme wildlife adventure <laughs> from the Sunday afternoon hike, for example. So let's talk about this. What is a risk? What is meant by risk aesthetic and what role does it play in the American environmental imagination? Yeah, I, I, I think I coined it. I don't think I got this from someplace else. But I was trying to um, come up with a phrase that would encompass how risk appears as a theme, but it's also part of the adrenaline narratives, plot setting, tone. Uh, and increasingly, it's a consequence, right, of, of the climate crisis. Uh, certainly with, you know, if there's no risk, in many ways, there's no adventure. That risk plays a defining role in adventure, 
both in terms of judging its scale or danger, but for defining what, you know, what is adventurous aesthetics. So risk in this sense, I think you could, you know, it, it is kind of an acquired taste or beauty <laughs> uh, that the adrenaline and adrenaline narratives often spend some time explaining how an adventurer both cultivates and copes with risk. So I tried to break down then the risk aesthetic into some uh, basically four parts. One is the context, uh, and that's what Ehrlich Beck talks about as risk society. So this is the context out of which a risk aesthetic aesthetic emerges in contemporary culture. Uh, The next uh, is thinking about the appeal of risk. And this is uh, dealing uh, a bit with the concept of adrenaline madness and um, the the, almost the idea that risk has, uh, or the negative associations, uh, negative even psychological as well as physical associations with risk. Uh, I also look at the risk aesthetic in, t- in terms of embodiment and management. And basically what I'm referring to there are the ways in which athletes embrace or reject that adrenaline junkie moniker, uh, but also how risk, as we were just kind of talking about, uh, is both gendered and raced. And then I look at setting, uh, and particularly what does the contemporary adventure in the Anthropocene or during the climate crisis, how is that different? Um, How does this uh, riskier setting uh, impact adrenaline narratives? So looking at the risk aesthetic uh, joins the study of narrative and the humanities more broadly with forms of cultural criticism coming out of the social sciences. So here I'm, I'm building on the work of Peter K. Manning and his article, High Risk Narratives, Textual Adventures. Uh, narrative in, in this view puts data into comprehensible into a comprehensible format or at least a more comprehensible format if you're coming from my perspective than looking at data uh, just some raw numbers uh, the adrenaline narrative I think especially in the ways that it engages risks across multiple levels is pedagogical risk in this sense teaches through narrative and so that's all a part of of how I'm thinking about this risk aesthetic. Teaches what? I think in terms of the how we how we live in the Anthropocene, we can look at the ways in which extreme athletes cultivate risk and cultivate is in some ways practice, right? Uh, the way that they uh, that they are, they may be teaching us ways to navigate an increasingly riskier environment. Okay. So you also you you mentioned already how this chapter looks at um, at how these uh, factors all intersect with race. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, um, in particular how the American environmental narrative is figured as white so often. I think there's two factors that contribute to the American environmental narrative as figured as as white. And one has to do with leadership, uh, representation in that sense. Uh, The organization Green 2.0 documents a green ceiling. That is the racial composition of environmental organizations and agencies can't seem to break the 12 to 16 percent. This combined with outdoor participation and visibility of racial and ethnic minorities in outdoor marketing and sponsorship, right, all helps skew the American environmental imagination to present white masculinity as the normative position. And then I think the second factor that's important to consider when thinking about, you know, why is uh, the American environmental narrative figured as white has to do with spatial politics. So fear and risk for racial and ethnic minorities, uh, in part, at least stems from a history of racial violence, especially lynching. 
And uh, Carolyn Finney explains this really well in her book, Black Faces, White Spaces, Reimagining the Relationship of African Americans to the Great Outdoors. Uh, the adventurer Eddie Harris, uh, for example, I uh, talk about in this chapter about an incident on his canoe trip down the Mississippi where he's accosted by two white men who questioned basically his right to be there on the on the river. So this, this shows how, be, you know, and you know, if you look at examples, whether it's in the suburbs, uh, in, in an urban environment or out in wilderness, being out of place, being labeled out of place means that you risk death. Uh, and James Edward Mills is um, a writer and adventurer who calls this reluctance and absence of African-Americans in the, in the outdoors, the adventure gap. So I think those that adventure gap, um, the spatial politics and leadership uh, all come together to skew this narrative white. So your last chapter turns to an emerging desire to repair the environmental crises that characterize the Anthropocene. So have you found that adrenaline narratives have a measurable impact on either raising awareness of environmental issues or in bringing about positive action? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I personally am not conducting the type of research that, you know, where I feel comfortable that I really, quote unquote, measured the impact. Uh, but I see the potential in the ways that representation in the American adrenaline narrative is changing. And even more so in the ways that the adrenaline narrative's structures are being challenged and shifted, rewritten so that they do not perpetuate the erasure and the exploitation of people or wilderness. Um, uh, one example I talk about comes from the organization Indigenous Women Hike and their work to reclaim land, what most people would understand or know as the John Muir Trail. Uh, that's a great example of, of, of restorative desire. Uh, there's a essay called Don't Climb Every Mountain by Elizabeth Wheeler. And she uses disability, she uses a disability studies per perspective, which provides and you know, what I would call a revolutionary model of refusal and resistance um, uh, to the supercrip narrative. And so uh, able bodied adventurers can learn a lot from, I think, that perspective in the way that it debunks the bootstrap American wilderness narrative. Uh, another, you know, sort of trying to pick a constellation of a couple different examples outside online did a story on Dave Morton that I talk about um, where he quits Everest. He decides not to quit, have, quit Everest. That was published in two, 2016. Um, so I think all these all these stories, uh, alternative stories, I'll contribute to shifting the dominant narrative uh, to one of restoration rather than pure recreation. You mentioned that it reminds me of an article, uh, a news item that came out, I think, last year that was about um, the lineup to get to the summit of Everest. <sighs> Do you remember that? And it was just so what you're saying about like, trying to shift the focus from the entertainment value of doing this to like the environmental impact. It was just sad to see all of these people lined up on Everest and creating garbage and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, there may have been a time may <laughs> this is a big may where someone would have said, you have a free trip to Everest. And I would have been like, great, I'm going, I'll, you know, at least try it. Uh, but now I just feel like, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it. Not just because I'm unqualified on so many levels. Uh, but just, I just think that we, we need to, radically rethink if if not only the the number of people uh but perhaps the even in in terms of why we're why we're climbing everest uh given the climate challenge uh climate challenges that particularly high alpine climbing is experiencing you know that, that it's become much more dangerous because of because of 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 climate change yikes 
So I'm curious what you've taken from the experience of researching this book. You talk about how John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, and others inspired you to travel around the world and experience some of these places that you'd read about. So has writing this book altered the nature of your own desire for adventures in the wilderness? Yeah, really. it, it did inspire me to travel, and it's also inspired me to look more closely at what's happening in my own backyard. Um Working on this project, I would say, um, you know, what, what's given me the most hope has been think or finding and discovering some of these amazing initiatives that are actively working to change the narrative. So I mentioned the um, James Edward Mills, his project is the Joy Trip, uh, the Joy Trip Project. Uh, there's uh, Diversify Outdoors, Indigenous Women Hike. Uh, Black Girls Hike, Latino Outdoors, Melanin Base Camp, Native Women's Wilderness, uh, great podcast she explores. Uh, so finding those projects of people who are finding a way to have, um, there's a publication called Adventure on Cover, and they talk about re uh, responsible adventure. And so that idea of responsible, sustainable adventure uh, is what gives me hope that uh, there are ways in which we'll be able to continue to uh, enjoy wilderness and nature uh, while at the same time recognizing that some significant changes need to take place too. I want to ask you another question too, because I just think it's, it's so cool that you identified this genre that nobody else had really put their finger on before. And you mentioned that adrenaline narratives, um, have existed in a lot of other contexts besides just the contemporary American. So I wondered, do you have any kind of ideas in mind for maybe in the future um, doing a similar an, uh, analysis just of different contexts or time mm -hmm. periods? Yeah, since the book has been published, I've been broadening some of my reading and mostly viewing. I've looked at a lot of different documentaries that don't just sort of focus on American adventurers uh, or that are produced and written by uh, uh, Americans. And, uh, you know, part of me is reluctant to look at it more globally because I feel like my, I, I feel most confident about my interpretation of culture at, you know, when I look at the, you know, when I look at American culture. Uh, and so I definitely, I, I don't have any plans uh, to do anything formal, but I always, uh, I, when I've had the opportunity to share my work with people from other countries, I'm really interested in terms of how they feel this narrative uh, that's not as, you know, it's not connected to some of these American mythologies that we've been talking about, uh, how it resonates similarly or differently. Uh, and in, in a sense, that environmental narrative, I would say, is the one point of commonality where folks are interested in thinking about, well, can we be, you know, can we have, you know, what, what do we need to do to provide a sustainable, sustainable wilderness, uh, but also kind of challenging the idea like uh, of that wilderness is this other place that we go to to have adventure. Um, and that then we come back, it's sort of, uh, uh, the challenging that narrative too. So, yeah, I guess the, the idea that popped into my head was like maybe the Victorian British context because, and that would be so colonial and, and from a conquering point of view, but mm -hmm. also this idea that, um, long distance travel was becoming more and more accessible to average, well, average upper class well-to-do people and um and they wrote a lot in journals and whatnot i just wondered if there could be a a really uh interesting narrative coming out of that but yeah yeah well and i hope you know if if other scholars find this idea interesting that they run with it and look at it with you know from a british context or from um you know uh, you know i think if, if you look at various uh you know the connection with colonialism uh, and adventure uh, is there, but then to think about you in terms of what it means in a contemporary context for countries like Spain or uh, Great Britain, um, uh, France. Yeah, you've really started something there. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Kristen, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Your book was really fun to read, really interesting. Before we do go, though, can you tell us what you're currently working on? I've just recently completed an essay. Uh, it's, you know, I'm sending it out. Uh, and it's about the HBO series Westworld. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so I look at it uh, for its presentation of the American West. Uh, but I think my next larger project, uh, it it's tentatively entitled American Environments. And what I want to do is look at the relationship between American regionalism, contemporary climate fiction, and the climate crisis. So what I'm trying to do is merge regional environmentalism or place-based ecology with how U.S. regions are represented in climate fiction. And some of this is coming out of... uh, an interest in regionalism, you know, and thinking about that as, you know, very 19th century genre and how some scholars have talked about in the 19th century that regionalism was really important for the United States coming back together again at the end of the civil, you know, after the civil war. So I'm also kind of then, you know, how how does our contemporary moment, I'm I've always been kind of fascinated with um, the ways in which literary history might be repeating itself in in new, in new and interesting ways. So that's kind of where uh, I'm thinking about going for my next project. Returning to the study of contemporary fiction, uh, maybe looking at some television and film as well. Fascinating. Okay. Well, yeah, let me thank you again for being on the show today. I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person. And uh, I hope you consider coming back with future books. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Kristen Jacobson about her new book, The American Adrenaline Narrative. If you'd like to find out more about Kristen, you can follow her on her Twitter at Dr. KJ. That's at D-R-K-J. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so just like you hear on all your other favorite podcasts, all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. Are you an adrenaline junkie, or do you like to read about adrenaline narratives? Can you think of any other examples that are marketed as extreme? Tell me about it. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Literary Studies channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in literary studies.